The text for tonight is Hebrews chapter 12, verses one, two, three. So if you've got a Bible, you can flip there. It will be on the screen. Hebrews chapter 12, verses one to three. Um, when we enter a text like Hebrews, it's just worth noting that what we're reading is like a first century correspondence. It's like a letter. I think the best way to understand Hebrews is one part letter, one part written sermon. So it's half sermon, half letter. And it's written uh, from like a preacher, preacher pastor to um, the first generations of Christians on planet earth. And so you got to understand in the first century world, this is, this is written shortly after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And we have this correspondence to people who are essentially trying to work out in light of Jesus's teaching, in light of his ministry, in light of his death and resurrection and the sending of the Holy Spirit, how do we live now? And Jesus, his teaching, his life was so antithetical to any of the ways of the world. So those that would follow Jesus and take and follow him seriously, like there's no roadmap for that right in front of them. And so they're beginning to work out, beginning to pass along from first high accounts what Jesus said and did. And then God is appointing people to help pastor and shape and understand how do we follow Jesus? And that's the correspondence we have access to. That's what we're reading tonight. It's a real document written to real people about real issues that has real relevance for us today. And I want to draw our attention to three verses in chapter 12. And it says this, it says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning at shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such oppositions from sinners that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Tonight is part two in a very short series before we jump into the Sermon on the Mount on perseverance. And Chris started last week talking about from the book of James, the concept of joy in trials. Think about that, joy in trials. It almost seems paradoxical, joy in trials. So if you missed last week's message, you can go back and listen to that on podcast or on YouTube. And I just want to build from what Chris established on this theme of perseverance. And specifically what I want to do is try to paint a picture of Christian perseverance. I think on some level, we all understand what perseverance is. It's not a uniquely Christian idea in and of itself. I think what's amazing is the humans have this incredible capacity for perseverance. Like it's just stunning what the human mind and human body is capable of. You think about children or families that are refugees in this moment and the fact that these children all over the world, that they have a hope and a future, like the human body, the human mind, the human spirit can persevere. It's stunning. Some of you have stories like that. If we could go around this room and hear stories of perseverance, we'd be, it'd be mind-blowing. It'd be mind-blowing. It's so powerful. It's so amazing. And we've all experienced perseverance on some level. But what I hope I'm able to do tonight, I'll do my best from this text, is to, to answer the questions like, what does perseverance look like in the Christian faith? And what, unique, what is unique about Christian perseverance? Because I think what, what I really want you to hear, and I hope I'm able to do this, is that there are resources from heaven for perseverance on earth. And when you persevere in Christ, it's a fundamentally different experience than persevering on your own. 
That's what I'm gonna try to do in our time together. Now, let's start by just having a, a quick definition of perseverance. Perseverance is not giving up, like keeping on going, even in the face of difficulties and setbacks. Perseverance is like following the path you're on, even when there are obstacles, even when you're tired, even if you're tempted to veer to the right or the left, it's continuing even when there are difficulties, distractions, or setbacks. Uh, by simple way of illustration, in 2005, I was in grade 12. I ran the Terry Fox run with our city. I went to Terry Fox Secondary School. I was very proud to go to Terry Fox Secondary School. He was our hometown hero. And so my friends and I like really, um, really sort of loudly uh, decided we're gonna go all out. So we, we had outfits, matching outfits, headbands, it was, looking back, I'm embarrassed, if I'm honest. We were on the front page of the newspaper because we thought we should be at the front of the line on the Sunday Terry Fox run. Even as I'm saying it to you, I'm even more embarrassed now. And uh, true story, um, we went off off the line really fast and there's like hundreds of people there just to cheer you on and thousands in the race. And I was just like so just fired up by the crowd that we just went super fast down this main street. And then we took a left onto a street in Port Coquitlam called Coast Meridian, those who are from the neighborhood, know exactly what I'm talking about. And um, what's unique about Coast Meridian, among many things for me, is that my friend had a house on Coast Meridian, and Andrew was, my friend Andrew was running with me, and we both happened to get real tired about three quarters of a kilometer in. And uh, his house is right on the path, like right on, so we just sort of like, just running and then just sharp left down <laughs> into his front door. And uh, we made Delicio, I remember it so clearly. And then after like half an hour, we just went out his back door and walked to the, the finish line. That's an example of not persevering. Are you with me? That's not persevering. Now, like 12 years later, I'm doing the Terry Fox run again, and I'm not at the front, I'm not an outfit. I'm in the crowd and I'm with my brother, Kevin. And uh, Chris shared a bit about this last week. Kevin at this time was in the middle of a fight with cancer. Kevin's doing great. Um, I was with him last night. He's training for a marathon right now. It's just incredible. And that's another story I'll tell you more about another time. Uh, but in this time, he, was, he just finished doing chemotherapy and uh, he wanted to do the Terry Fox run. And I, I was in worse shape than I would have been in grade 12. But of course, I'm gonna run with Kev. And I remember actually getting to the end of that same street and being exhausted. And, but of course, I didn't stop because Kev's there. And uh, there's nothing impressive about persevering through a 10-kilometer run. That's not impressive. What's impressive is someone like Kevin persevering and having joy in the midst of struggle, maintaining his faith in the midst of chemotherapy and impending death, like the, the, giving a six-month, that's perseverance. And some of you know that intimately. But that's the difference, right? Because perseverance starts when you want to quit. Perseverance is not perseverance. It's not perseverance when you have all the energy in the world. Like this summer, if you go out for a run and the sun's out, you put the right mix in your ears and you're just feeling all the energy of the seawall and you're on your first kilometer and you feel like I could do this forever. That's not perseverance. Perseverance is the moment where you feel like quitting. It's, it's hailing outside. Your AirPods die and you've got a stitch and you're like, some of you guys know that real well. You're like, I should just charge these things. Perseverance is continuing to run in that moment. Persevering in marriage, it's a big part of marriage in any relationship. But in those first weeks of dating, when it's just electric, it's like spark, 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 spark. That's not perseverance. Perseverance is 15 years later when you're still with that person and there aren't those sparks, but you pursue your spouse's heart. 
When you're aware of your frailty, you've hurt one another, you forgive and you continue to pursue one another. That's perseverance. What about even in worship? Perseverance is not when you can't help but sing. Like tonight, like Sousa and Jer, I'm like, it's just I can't help it. I remember I was a youth being at youth conferences and being like surrounded by people worshiping God and I just couldn't help it. That's not persevering in worship. Perseverance starts when everything inside of you does not want to sing a good word about God because there's no one left around you singing and the circumstances tell you a different story and yet you raise your voice anyways. You raise your hands anyways. Perseverance. And any vision of Christianity without including perseverance without an understanding and a language and even an expectation for perseverance is inconsistent and incompatible with the New Testament. And so I think that all of us are on this journey of understanding what the Christian faith is like and feels like. And our primary source material is the Bible. And what we see in the New Testament is what the first followers of Jesus did with this information did with the transforming power of Jesus in their life. And I just want to draw your attention to actually some, some, some language in a number of other letters. So these are first century letters that are being exchanged uh, from essentially pastors to young Christians. Romans chapter 12 says, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Paul prays in Colossians chapter one that the followers of Jesus would be strengthened so that they might have great endurance and patience. Galatians 6, let us not become weary and doing good for at the proper time you'll reap a harvest if you do not give up. James chapter 1, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. 2 Thessalonians 3, never tire of doing what is good. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, stand firm in Christ. And so the language of the first Christians were language of endure, stand firm. Don't give up. Persevere. Why? Why is this theme so consistent? For one reason, because in the world they lived in, the cultural stream around them went the opposite direction of the way of Jesus. And so, just for one example, like Jesus' teaching, forgive your enemies, in a culture where it would be justified to retaliate. In fact, it would almost be like to not retaliate would be perceived as like weak or like are you not protecting your own, your pride of your family or whatever it might be. So the cultural reality, that we might be able to get our head around. But the other dynamic that was at play, we are not experiencing. And it was the fact that for the first Christians, following Jesus often meant uh, being rejected by family or friends, persecution, loss of homes, loss of jobs, possessions. In some cases, being sent to prison, mocked in public beaten. And this was the reality. And so these weren't like subtle notes, like keep on going. It was like, stand firm. Don't give up. When everything inside of you wants to quit, persevere. Persevere. And that's the context that the passage of scripture that we read tonight was written to followers of Jesus, where everything around them was going in a different direction that might be on the edge of, I don't know if I can continue on. I don't know if I can keep doing what is right before God. It's costing too much. So the writer of Hebrews says, you know, you've got this race in front of you and run it with perseverance. And this language of race, 
This language of race, the text says in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse one says, run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. The word race, and like the idea of having a race marked out is kind of a comforting idea. Like I love the idea of God having a path for our life. It's hard to find a path. But this word in and of itself is not a comforting word. The word in Greek that's translated for race is like agon or like A-G-O-N, which brings to mind agony. And that's right. Those are connected words. It means struggle. The writer's saying, like, run with perseverance, the struggle marked out for us. That's far less encouraging, you know? (laughs) And actually, the image that would come to mind would be the pentathlon. For the first readers, they would have thought the race, the struggle, the the metaphor is the pentathlon. And the pentathlon uh, was a race that started with long jump and then javelin and then discus and then a run. So you see all these elements. And then after you did javelin and discus and a run, you fought. <laughs> and that's the race you're supposed to run with perseverance. Like what's following Jesus like? It's like doing javelin and then discus, fun. And then a run, okay, not so much. And then fight. <laughs> like that is the pentathlon. And uh, this metaphor is not meant to illustrate things that the metaphor was not meant to illustrate. It's not saying that somehow we're in a race against one another. That's not what this is saying, not at all. What it's saying is that we're in a race in the sense that following Jesus, and what is the race? It's the race of faith. It's keeping faith in Jesus. It's keeping eyes on Jesus. It's following the way of Jesus. That it's a race in the sense that it requires discipline and vision, and that it comes with a price, that it costs something, and it has a great reward. In that sense, it's a race. And I just want to take a, a few moments to illustrate, maybe illustrate's not the right word, just to bring our imagination into different areas in our lives today where perseverance might be at play. And I think what I'm trying to do with these examples is just, have you ever been like warned about something and like because your expectations were informed, what might have like ruined your experience didn't at all? Like, just by, like, changing your expectations, you're like, oh, I knew there would be a lineup, you know, at this restaurant. So when I saw the lineup, it was fine. It was actually shorter than I expected. But, like, had you gone and you didn't, ha- you had- you didn't have that in your expectations? You see what I mean? Like, I think what I want to do is set our expectations. And so let me just give you a few examples. First, persevering in abiding with Jesus. Here's the invitation. The invitation is in the midst of a very noisy world full of clutter and distraction in the midst of a world that essentially is constantly saying that your value, like your worth, your identity is measured by uh, the value you add, your winsomeness, your popularity, your, your beauty on some scale that's set by the culture around you. In the midst of that, the invitation is to draw near to Jesus, to enter into his word daily, to be alone with him, to receive a word of his love, to have your mind reoriented around the truth of a loving God who made you, loves you, pursues you. What an amazing invitation. And so you hear that invitation. I hear that invitation. So you set your alarm a little early tomorrow. Say, I want to wake up early. I want to receive that invitation. I want to abide deeply in Jesus. I want to walk with him. I want to open my word in the morning. I want to get caught up in the story of God. I want to hear his voice. I want to worship him before it's light outside. I want to be still before him. I need silence in the midst of this noisy world. So you wake up in the morning a little early and everything inside of you wants to go back to bed. And then you, go, you finally get out of bed and you make the coffee and you want to set your eyes on Jesus, but your mind is everywhere. And you open up your phone and you're six minutes, 10 minutes, 12 minutes and you've been totally distracted. 
And just to even turn off your phone in that moment feels like a fight. And then all of a sudden you accidentally checked your email and now you're in work mode and you got a text from a friend and it, it feels like a fight just to abide. And I guess I just wanted you to know that abiding in Jesus is the most rich thing we can do in this life. It's what you were made for, but it might feel like perseverance. I just wish someone told me what it would feel like to wake up and pray. Because for me, most mornings, it feels like perseverance. Some days, it's very rewarding. And some days, it just felt like perseverance. Okay, what about um, loving your neighbor? So Jesus sums up the law and the prophets by saying, this is essentially the message. Love God with all of who you are and, then, and love your neighbor as yourself. So you go, I'm going to love my neighbor. And uh, if you reach out to your literal neighbors and it turns out like they're like the same age as you and they like the same shows as you. And so it's like, now you guys watch Survivor on Thursday nights together. And like, they're actually a great cook and they are like happy to do it. And they're like, I'm here with wine and pizza. You're like, this is amazing. I love loving my neighbor. That's wonderful. I'm so happy for you. That's not persevering in loving your neighbor. That's just having a good neighbor. And um, persevering in loving your neighbor at, 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 at best is overcoming awkwardness and insecurity, overcoming whatever obstacles might be way. And then that's worse is trying to love somebody who's antagonistic towards you, who doesn't love you. Like it's, what does it feel like to persevere in loving that coworker or that colleague or that neighbor or person who, who isn't warm towards you? In some cases, might even feel hostile towards you. What does it feel like? And I feel like the writers of the New Testament say, don't give up in loving your neighbor. Don't give up in abiding. Persevere. Stand firm. What about um, persevering in the face of temptation? I think what's interesting about this example is temptation by its very definition is persevering. There's no temptation that's not persevering. Everything else is not temptation. Like if I can illustrate it without using like an example of sin that's heavy, I'll just talk about my own relationship with cookies um, just for illustration purpose. Like in this moment, I'm not tempted to eat all of the cookies. I can't see them. I don't, there's no cookies in front of me. Um, but when I go home and I remember that Rach baked these amazing peanut butter oatmeal chocolate chip cookies and they're in the freezer and I just love them frozen. And she's like, I earned it. I preached three times today. And um, I just pull out the bag. I'm just going to have one, but I'll just keep the bag on the counter just in case. Um, what ends up, that's, that to, that's when perseverance starts. My experience is if they're in front of me, I eat all of the cookies. So if there's one cookie left, I eat one. If there's six, six. It's just like, it's all or none for me because I have one and I'm like, well, you know what? I've already messed it up. <laughs> I'm all in. You know, I don't know how the science works, but like, you know, my blood sugar levels are up. I'm just in a fog. I earned it. I preached three times today. That, like, to not in that moment, that's, that, now let's, let's consider temptations that are more serious. Um, temptation, like, to use our power to manipulate a situation in our favor. The temptation to bend the story, not lie, but to bend the story so we position ourselves better. The temptation to use silence or any manipulative emotion to control the other or to punish the other. The temptation uh, with our eyes to take in content or image, to participate in systems that dehumanize others. 
And there's so many examples where there seems to be no instant consequence. And what does it feel like to choose to run the race of faith in that moment? It feels like, like tempt, to, to persevere in the face of temptation feels like, well, it feels like a struggle. It feels like a race. It feels like agony. And I just want you to know. And some of you, you are making the hard decision to persevere in the midst of temptation. I just want to honor you. And, um, and there's some of us that we've just thrown in the towel. We say, I'm just giving up. And it could be something that could be uh, seemingly more instantly destructive, like addiction to substances. And you said, well, I'm just, I'm just giving in. I've already blown it. Or it could be something that seems more subtle. And I'll come back to this in a bit because those things that seem more subtle can also often become the ones that just can have a corrosive effect over time. And I just, with all of this, want to say, don't give up. Don't give up. I think what's so unique about Jesus is when you discover the grace in his eyes and the forgiveness and the way he sees us when we give into temptation, it totally transforms your experience. Some of you guys grew up in a religious environment where just me talking about temptation and sin is triggering with, for you right now. You feel walls coming up. You're frustrated at me. You're frustrated at yourself. You're frustrated at the church. And I'm so sorry. I don't, I don't know what you experience, but you don't know the face of Jesus. Or his face is not the primary image in your mind. If you see his face, you see a gracious father who longs for you to live a full life. And his countenance towards you is so gracious. He's so kind. And it's in this, we're starting to get there, where it's like there are resources to persevere in Jesus that you cannot find anywhere else. I love to spend time on lots of examples. Um, I'll move quicker through these other ones. What about persevering in unity in our church? We could talk about unity in the church between the Catholics and the Protestants. We could talk about unity in the church in Vancouver. I want to talk about our church. I want to talk about unity in our church. I want to talk about the reality that right now all over North America, their church is fractured again and again and again over mask mandates, vaccine mandates. And it's not the mask or the vaccine that are fracturing the church. You get that, right? It's ego and pride. That's what's fracturing the church. That's what it is. And it doesn't take persevering in unity when everyone agrees and when everyone's like you. But we're longing that God would build a diverse, dynamic, multicultural, multigenerational, representing different socioeconomic people within our city into one family, that that would be a witness to the living God at work in our lives. And you know what that means? That means people who believe very differently than you about things that are close to your heart. And we live in a moment in history that moralizes every single opinion to the point that anyone who disagrees with you, they are bad and they're on the bad side. And this is toxic and it's destroying our society and it seeps its way into the church. So what does it feel like to stay unified? We must stay unified. It feels like perseverance. It feels like being like, I'm intentionally going out of my way to pursue that person who sees this differently than I do. And I always, like, I don't think it's good practice for preachers to be too specific. But it's like, man, if there's that person, and I, I'm going to just shoot myself in the foot by being really specific. And um, you know what? I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I know better. It's, I'm not as loose as Chris on, on Sunday nights. I, per, I just, that was me. I just persevered, guys. You saw it in action. Thank you. Um. 
I would love to actually like just keep giving examples all night because it's about expectation. What does it feel like to be a unified church? It feels like persevering in unity. And I actually just want to ask, like, have you had to persevere or have you thrown in the towel? Oh, I don't want to be that person. I cannot believe they dot, dot, dot. What if we actually pursued those people? What about in marriage or other important relationships? But let's just talk about marriage. I feel in my heart that we live in a moment that um, if it gets hard, you quit. And like the most rewarding relationships are on the other side of radical commitment. Radical commitment. And I realized that this demographic is not a lot of married people. But if this room was full of married people, I said like, is it perseverance? They would not. And I'd want to look every married couple in the eye and I said, I just don't give up. Don't give up pursuing each other's hearts. Don't give up like laying down your life for the other. I would say to dads, it's hard to persevere in loving your kids when you come home from work tired. I say to moms, coming home from work tired, I say, don't give up laying down your life for your kids. Don't give up pursuing their little hearts, taking interest in them. Don't give up repenting when you overreact. Don't give up, don't give up. That's what this is about. What about prayer? Praying for people far from God. Maybe there's a brother or a sister, a cousin or a friend. And you've been praying them for, for a long time. And you're like, God, do you hear my prayers? I've been praying for so long. Some of you have been praying for someone for years. And I just wanted to say, don't give up. Stand firm. Endure. Persevere. And so the writer of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3, to all these people experiencing perseverance on different fronts, so that he would encourage them to keep on going and to protect them from stumbling and to give them the key to running the race well. That's what he wants to do. He wants to encourage us tonight. This can be a resource for us to encourage us, to protect us from stumbling and to give us the key to running the race well. How is this encouraging? It says in verse one, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. What is this cloud of witnesses that somehow encourages us? What's this cloud of witnesses that by knowing that they're there, it can embolden us in our perseverance in whatever it might be? Encouragement's a powerful thing. I was doing the Vancouver Triathlon. It happens every year on like the September long weekend. If anyone wants to do it, you've got to come do it. I do like the kids version. It's like super, like it's all the shortest. Like it's like if you want to give it a try and if you're a child, that's the one I sign up for. And I do that one, but it feels like perseverance. I broke my toe a couple of days before. I just taped that bad boy up and I came out of the water dizzy because it's in the, in the ocean. I did a little bike ride um, around the park and then I'm doing the run and I, I come along this stretch on English Bay and I see my kids there with signs and Hudson and Mary Millie, they're like eight and six and four and Rach is there with them. They start running beside me and guys, I can't explain it. There was something physical that changed by their presence. Like I, it, it's, it's, it's not even just like I got excited. It's like I physically found a resource I didn't have otherwise. Like it emboldened me and enlivened me. And the writer of Hebrews is like, if you could see this cloud of witnesses, it will do something for you. And I don't even know if I've entered fully into this. I don't know if I've fully entered in this reality, but for the writer of Hebrews, this was a very, very important reality. So what's going on here? Cloud, this word cloud, really simple. It's just a metaphor for like a group, a crowd. 
And that's why in some translations they would say, you know, since there's a crowd of witnesses or a host of witnesses or so many witnesses. So this idea of a cloud, like a crowd of people cheering us on, that's the first, and their cloud of witnesses. What is a witness? A witness is someone who can testify to it or has experienced it firsthand. So he's saying there's a cloud of people who have ran the race of faith and can testify to their experience. And they're saying it's worth it. And very specifically, if you look to chapter 11, you can see the names he's referencing. So we're in chapter 12. The writer of Hebrews had just done this whole sort of beautiful essay in chapter 11. That's like all of these people in their generation who followed God and they ran the race of faith in their generation. And then they pass the baton to the next. And that's why it's like by faith, Abraham. And then it goes by faith, Isaac. Then by faith, Jacob. And then by faith, Joseph. This is one generation to the next. All very broken, imperfect people who ran the race of faith in their generation and then passed the baton. And the picture is this. Those who have gone before us in the faith are testifying to the reality that it's worth following God in your generation. It's worth carrying on. And they're also saying, you're up. It's a, picture, it's a picture of a baton being passed. And there's a version of this where we somehow get ego, like we're up. But then you realize that there's millions of Christians around the world. And then all of a sudden you realize we are up. And God thought so fit to see us in Vancouver in this moment of history, not perfect, broken, flawed, running the race of faith receiving the baton from those that have gone before us. And for me, this extends past just the, the people mentioned in chapter 11. I think about my grandparents. I think about my great-grandparents who in their generation ran the race of faith through the Great Depression, through world wars. We're not the first generation to experience tragedy. And they ran the race of faith, broken, flawed, but they didn't throw in the towel. They didn't give up. They passed the baton. And this is meant to embolden us that it's worth it to not give up. So the writer writes this to encourage us, but he also writes to protect us from stumbling. It says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, so this group leaning over saying, keep on going. It says, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. When I read this, I think about like an elite athlete, like a cyclist who's taking their they're running so seriously that anything that would slow them down is worth an audit. And so that's why you hear these crazy stories of like uh, cyclist teams, like anything that's like a fraction of a gram, they're taking off the bike if they can. They're like shaving their arms because that hair creates a tiny bit of draft when that's like, you know, extrapolated over hundreds of kilometers. It adds up to seconds, which could win or lose the race. Like that kind of audit, that's a whole different perspective. It's, it's, it's saying like anything that slows me down from the race, cutting out. And I think that's what we need to have in mind when the writer of Hebrews says, if there's anything that's entangling you, throw it off. And this is a different conversation about sin. I really want to invite all of us to rethink sin. Um, because this text in particular, or for example, gives us a few insights into sin. But as you begin to follow the thread of how sin is unpacked in the Bible, I don't think it is what you think it is. I think it's more relevant and more important than we often give credit. And there's an ethical side to it. What is right or wrong? And I think we're desperate for an ethical framework for life on planet Earth. But there's also this side of it, and these are deeply connected, of course, where it's like, this isn't just an ethical conversation with what's ultimately right or wrong. This is about how do you live a life of flourishing? 
And it's about realizing sin's effect on your life, that it entangles. I think there's two brilliant insights from this text about the nature of sin. First is that it entangles. It entangles. Like, just think, like for me, I think one of the things I'm meant to do with my life, I think all of us, but I know this at least for me, is I'm supposed to use my words. I'm supposed to use my words to build people up. I'm meant to do that. I think all followers of Jesus are meant to realize the power of their words, to use them to build them up. But when I give in to like toxic speak, when I settle on, when I become critical and cynical, when I give in to gossip, and that happens in my life again and again and again, to not give in to those things feel like perseverance. You know what it does? It's me subverting the very purpose by which I'm called to build people up. And I'm using my words to tear people down. Do you see that? It derails you from your purpose. And we could talk about any number of things, but just consider pornography for a moment. Like we're meant to look at people, to see their beauty, their dignity in a culture that objectifies people. And pornography, what it does, it just warps your ability to just see people as whole and human. It creates shame in these vicious cycles and it sabotages marriages and relationships. And this thing that's like, no, well, maybe no one will know about it. It's like, listen, I'm not here to make anyone feel guilty or shameful. That's not, that doesn't work. That's not, the, that's not a long-term fix. The whole point of this text is that we're met with a grace and a different kind of resource that actually allows us to persevere. But the reality of this is that it seeps in and it entangles and it robs you from the purpose by which you were called to live. Like you're meant to like defend people, protect people, see them as infinitely valued. And then it just entangles you. And this could be true of love of money, love of self, any number of things. So first insight from this text is that sin entangles. The second insight, it easily entangles. It says the sin that so easily entangles. I think what we're talking about here is the fact that for some people, they stop running because they throw in the towel and quit. Probably all of us have experienced that, even in our, in our, in our walk of faith. So there's the throwing in the towel, but there's a different kind of stopping the race. And that's when sin has so entangled you that you can no longer run. And what I'm saying is that for some people, or what I'm attempting to say is that for some people, for me in my life at times, I didn't set out to sabotage my life, but things crept in little by little and I didn't take them seriously enough. I didn't bring them into the light. I didn't use the resources of a loving community and a loving God. They just, they just crept in. And then before I knew it, I was paralyzed. I wasn't able to run the race because sin so easily entangles. And so I think this is an invitation for us tonight to say like in the midst of this run of faith, this race of perseverance is to take an audit and just ask the question, no guilt, no shame. Is this helping or hindering me? Is this helping or hindering me? And I think that we always have to revisit that question. And so the writer of Hebrews wants to encourage you, man, there's a, crowd, like there's a cloud of witnesses cheering you on. And he wants to protect you. Like there's, watch for those things that entangle you. They'll entangle you. They'll subvert your very purpose and they can so easily entangle your life. And then lastly, the writer of Hebrews wants to give you the key to running the race well. And this is the most important part. This is the most important thing that I need you to hear tonight. This is the, the thing that fundamentally changes or is different between perseverance and Christian perseverance. And it's the key to running the race well. And the key to running the race well is where we put our attention. Have you considered the idea that you get to give your attention 
Like we give our attention. And then our attention can be distracted, can be pulled away, but it's something we give. As a husband, I have a responsibility to give my attention to my wife. And that's a choice I make with my eyes, with my thoughts, with the way I treat others. I'm choosing to give my attention to Rachel. And in this text, in a more significant way, it's saying, give your attention to Jesus. The language of the text is, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorned its shame, and sat at the right hand of the throne of God. And then it says, consider him. There's that language of attention again. Consider him. Give your thought to him. Occupy your thoughts with him. And this is the key to running the race well. And this is the number one thing we're trying to do on Sunday night at church. It's our number one goal is whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, just help you see him clearer. Turn your attention on him. Turn your attention on him. See him more clearly. And it's hard to fix your eyes on Jesus. There's so much fighting for our attention. And so it's a moment-to-moment decision, especially when you're in the midst of pain or struggle or suffering or sin. And in those moments, when you feel like throwing in the towel, the invitation here is fix your eyes on Jesus. Because in him, you will find resources that you do not have on your own. In him, you find resources from heaven for the race on earth. In Jesus, you find courage. You find an example of suffering like no other example. You find strength and you find grace. You find grace to keep on going even when you blow it. And I don't know where else you can find all those things. For the race, for the struggle of life, in Jesus, in in giving our attention to him, you find courage, strength, grace. And the text has all this incredible insight. And I'll just move really quickly. But into like what happens when we turn our eyes on him, like what we discover. He says, turn your eyes on Jesus, fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of your faith. I love this language, the pioneer and perfecter of your faith. In some translations, the author and perfecter of your faith. In another translation, fix your eyes on Jesus, the one on whom your faith depends from the very beginning to the very end. The one on whom your faith depends from the very beginning to the very end. This is really important. We can find ourselves fixing our eyes on ourselves in such a way that's like, this is on me, Jay, you blew it. You've got to get it together. And somehow we can believe that somehow either our salvation or our sanctification is on me. And what the writer of Hebrews wants to say is, fix your eyes on Jesus, the one on whom your faith depends from the beginning to the end. And this is true in our like coming to know Jesus, that before we had a good idea in us, Jesus pursued us. It was God's idea to make a way for us to be reconciled to him. It was God's idea to extend love to us before we had love for him. God paid the debt we could not pay. Jesus satisfied the debt of our sin. Jesus overcame sin, death, and the devil. And even if we dedicate our whole life to pay that debt, to overcome evil, to like earn that love, you can never do it. Everything we're talking about tonight is not earning. It's not earning. Dallas Willard once says that grace is not opposed to effort, but it's opposed to earning. We're not talking about earning. We cannot earn the gift of faith that we have in Jesus. But after you become a Christian or after you, you say, okay, sure, like he saved me, but the rest is on me. It's not. He carries the weight. We participate, 
We bring effort, we persevere, but it's God that is a work in your life and he will see it through. And you would think like, man, if we really want to encourage people to persevere, we need them to think it's on them. But that doesn't work, does it? That is insufficient. Here's the beauty. And this is what's different about Christian perseverance is because it's not all on me, I will not come to the glaring realization that if it was all on me, it's not worth trying because I cannot do it on my own. But if God is real, and if Jesus is God, and he is committed to my life, and he's gonna see through what he started, it is worth getting back up again because it's not all on me. And then you discover a way to persevere that you could not otherwise. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of your faith. And it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The joy set before him, he endured the cross. He's looking at the cross. The cross is before him, but that's not the primary thing in his view. There is a result of the suffering of Jesus that he has in mind, and it's twofold. First, it's obeying his father. Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane, and he says, I do not want this. God, if you could, could you take this cup from me? But not my will, but your will. And I've tried to rack my brain this week to explain this better, but I can't. But there's something that happens. This is all I can, I can do to explain it. There's something happens that we see modeled in Jesus that represents Christian maturity where the number one goal is obeying the Father. And I've got no analogy for that. Where you just cross a line and say, it's just not even about me at all. The main motivation is obeying the Father, and that's my joy. It's twofold, though, because God is asking the Son, the Father is asking the Son to lay down his life for a purpose, and the purpose is that you and I and all of humanity might be reconciled to God through Jesus. That the perfect Son of God would lay down his life, and in his suffering, he would satisfy the debt of our sin, shut the mouth of the accuser, overcome death, that we might have whole life. The joy before Jesus was the glory of the Father and that we might be reconciled. And so in this, we discover that somehow the joy before Jesus includes us. And when we discover that we are his joy, it creates a deposit of joy in our heart to obey and follow that you could not find otherwise. And it says that he scorned the shame. He rejected it. He turned his back on the shame. And that means we don't have to walk in shame. And perseverance is not just about our own failures or setbacks, but if you are like me and you found yourself again and again and again in your own mess, you can find yourself thinking, why bother trying? Why bother getting up? I'm just going to make a mess of it again. But when you fix your eyes on Jesus and he scorned the shame, we no longer have to feel shame. It's like the, the, the face of Jesus towards us is a face of so much grace. Like how does he look at you in your sin? He just looks at you with so much grace and love. So much love and forgiveness. So much acceptance. Like he doesn't reject you, he accepts you. He pulls you close. And when you see that, you find a, a resource you find a strength to persevere that you would not have otherwise. In any other circumstance, I, I want to get up and do this. I don't want to get up and do this. But you find a strength to keep on going. And so the author says, consider him who endured such oppositions 
opposition from sinful people. Like Jesus was under the hands of, in, of unjust people. Like if you've ever found yourself in a circumstance where you're like, I don't deserve this. He says, the, the writer said, consider Jesus. He didn't deserve it, but look at the redemptive power. And then all of a sudden you begin to realize like, even when I'm under the, the, the effect of injustice and corruption, and, and you, I, I don't deserve this. You go that in the midst of it, the redemptive power of God was so at work in the work of Jesus that his death, his suffering brought about new life for all of humanity. And that same redemptive power can be at work in our lives. And that's a resource to persevere. That God's gonna make beauty out of ashes. That he's gonna have his, the last word. That he's gonna redeem this for his glory. Otherwise, I would throw in the towel. But if all of this is true, strength to persevere. Strength to persevere. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning his shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God in the seat of authority. So consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so you will not grow weary and lose heart. In just a moment, we're gonna take communion. We're gonna fix our eyes on Jesus. We're gonna fix our eyes on Jesus. I wanna invite all of you to hear one more time. Don't give up. Keep on going. Stand firm. Stand firm. Don't throw in the towel. Last thought. Last thought and then I'm done. There is a letting go that's not giving up. There's a letting go that's not giving up. This is really important. Because if you've ever found yourself in a position where you're like, I, I can't do this anymore. I can't persevere anymore. Like, I'm not telling you just to dig a little deeper. I want you to hear that like at the core of Christian perseverance is you can lay yourself on Jesus and say, I can't carry this anymore. I can't do this anymore. And there's a letting go that's not giving up. In fact, I learned this most from my friends in recovery. Um, one of my favorite ministers, I mean, I shouldn't say favorite ministries. I love a lot of ministries. One ministry that I love that our church supports is Wagner Hills. It's a recovery program in Langley. There's two campuses. There's one uh, for men, one for women. And uh, most of the people there, um, all of them are dealing with addiction. And uh, in many cases, it's uh, drugs or alcohol, and uh, in some cases, other things. And uh, they've come to the place, like because of the destructive power of the addiction, their life's fallen apart often. And uh, relationships are severed. And they've come to the point where they're like, no, I, I don't want this substance to win. And so they go to the farm and they actually like lay down everything. Because when you're there, you're saying like, you don't have autonomy anymore. You're subjected to the program and rhythms of the farm. And so you're just sort of laying it all down. And I wanted just to ask this question, like when they go to the farm, when they enter the program, when they start, or in other cases, going to AA, whatever, is that, is that giving up? Or is that perseverance? It's perseverance. Like that's perseverance. But that's also letting go. 
Because any man or woman who enters that program goes, I can't do it on my own. I tried. I tried to white knuckle this. And it's throwing themselves on God and on community. And I just, I want to invite you, if you're tired and weary, to let go. Because there's a letting go that's not giving up. In fact, there's a letting go that is persevering. That's saying, God, I'm not going to quit. But I can't hold it anymore. So I'm going to throw myself on you. And I'm even going to let people in. Because Jesus works through community. I'm going to let people in. I'm going to, I'm going to admit that I need support. I cannot do this alone. There is a letting go that's not giving up. Jesus, I pray that you would teach us in light of your grace and mercy, what it means to let go. God, to persevere not in our own strength, but from, with resources from heaven. And God, I pray that we would see you clearly tonight and we'd see the grace in your eyes. We'd see your example of suffering. We'd see your great love, your power, your commitment. And that it would embolden us to run the race of faith. In Jesus' name, amen.